If you want to open your Bibles at Mark 15, now series in Mark, which we're calling The Way of the Cross, we find ourselves at the point where Jesus is before Pilate. And that's going to be our text for today. Mark 15. I'm going to read from the screen, if that's all right. The 1984 translation is a bit different to the one we're currently using, so um, Mark 15, verse 1 to 15. Sam's ready to go. I'm ready to go. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. As we approach the final final moments of Jesus' life in Mark's gospel, the pace slows down. We have more detail. We have more things that are going on, more descriptions. And we find ourselves here looking in close detail at the trial before Pilate's. Once again, Jesus is on trial. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at his trial before the chief priests, the Sanhedrin. And it's all about, the trials are all about trying to establish, this one particularly, does Jesus deserve to die? The religious leaders have made up their mind. We saw that before in uh, verse 62 of chapter 14. The, The high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus responds, I am. He says, I am the Messiah. And he also says, I am the Lord. And he he carries on, and you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest's response to this was to tear his clothes. Do we need any more witnesses, he asked. have, Have you heard the blasphemy? What do you think? The chief priests, the Sanhedrin, are convinced of this fact. Jesus deserves to die. He needs to die. But they have a problem. This is their problem. They don't have the civil authority, the right to kill anybody. They can't do that. So they have to come to the civil authority, in which case, Pilate, in their case. They have to come to Pilate and ask him, this man needs to be killed. He deserves to die. So Pilate is therefore given this man, Jesus, he's probably heard a little bit about, and he has to question him to establish, does this man deserve to die or not? And we're going to start this morning looking at that question, does Jesus deserve to die? And we'll look at Pilate's investigations and his conclusions. So let's start in verse 2. He starts his interrogation. He says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? 
Are you the king of the Jews? For the religious authorities, for the leaders of Judaism, this was not true. He wasn't their king because the king was the Messiah and Jesus wasn't the Messiah. For Pilate, he asked the question with a slightly different viewpoint. He's trying to establish, is Jesus a threat to Caesar? Is this someone wanting to take over Caesar's authority? Is this someone wanting to take over some control of Pilate's area? Is this a threat? Is Jesus a threat? And he goes on into 15.4. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. What did they accuse him of? We find a bit of detail in Luke 23. We'll just go there briefly. What were they accusing him of? Luke 23 and verse 2. This is what the chief priest said. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. Pilate says, this is what they're accusing you of. Aren't you going to answer? Aren't you going to respond? Aren't you going to defend yourself? But Pilate arrives at a different conclusion to that of the chief priests. We see that in John 18. In verse 33, I'll read quite a bit. This is a conversation between Pilate and Jesus. This gospel gives us more detail. John was part of that information. So we'll start at verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. And with this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate's interrogated him. Is he a threat to Caesar? He's looked at the accusations the chief priests have levied, and this is, what he, this is his conclusion. I find no basis for a charge against him. He's not guilty. He does not deserve death. He's not worthy of death. It's clear that Jesus, to Pilate, wants to be some sort of king, but he doesn't seem to be any a threat at all to Caesar. He doesn't deserve to die. I don't need to kill him in that sense. But there's a greater test to apply here, because the Bible has another test. Romans 6.23, a famous verse, says this, The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. I remember earning my first wage. I was about eight or nine, and we had a gentleman called Terry Viner who was a builder, and he was building an extension in the back of our house. He was a typical builder. He uh, wore clothes that were dirty. His trousers were suitably loose. He was a builder in every sense of the word. These things stick with you when you're eight years old. But he had a very dirty car as well because he just used to chuck loads of stuff in it. And we, on a Saturday, he came to his work at our house and we had nothing else to do. He said, well, do you want to wash my car? And I'll pay you five pounds. We jumped at the chat. Five pounds, by the way, about 20, 30, 32 years ago was a lot of money. Five pounds. Whew, 
a lot of money. So we jumped at the chance. It was the first chance to earn the wage. This was the deal. You clean my car, you deserve a wage. The wage is five pounds. We've got the passage here. The wages of sin is death. If we commit sins before our holy God, we deserve to die. We deserve separation from God. We deserve punishment. And Jesus must also pass this test. Does he deserve to die? Has he ever sinned? If he'd sinned at any point in his life on this earth, he would be worthy of death. There's a greater test to apply here. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the trial before the Jewish authorities couldn't produce anything that sticked. There was nothing there. And Hebrews 4.15 says this, that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Without sin. Sin, which makes him better than Mary Poppins. Why does it make him better than Mary Poppins? What was Mary Poppins? Practically perfect in every way. But Jesus is perfect in every single way. He never put a foot wrong. He never spoke a word out of turn. He never thought anything he shouldn't have thought. He was totally and utterly sinless. So the key question that, that Pilate's trying to answer is, no, he didn't deserve to die. But we, we apply a greater test from the word of God, and we still arrive at the same conclusion. This man, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, did not deserve to die. He didn't deserve to die. But when we introduce this new test, that the wages of sin of death, we've got a different conclusion to draw about the other characters in this story. Pilate, the religious leaders, the crowds, they're all condemning Jesus to die. But there's a really dark irony in this. If we use the Bible's test, they all deserve to die. Let's look at them in detail. The religious authorities... We don't even need to work out what's going on because Pilate assesses this and Mark's narrative pulls it out. So we go to verse 10. Or let's go to verse 9. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest or envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him? Pilate sees through what was going on. He knows Jesus doesn't deserve death, but they've got an agenda and they're serving their purposes. They're doing it out of self-interest. They're not thinking about anyone else. They're just completely thinking about themselves. Jesus was a threat to everything they knew, everything they trusted, everything they built their life upon. He was undermining their authority. He was breaking into their situations and was ruining their lives. They couldn't stand it. And they were operating out of self-interest. They could have come objectively to Jesus, put aside their own interest and concluded that he was Messiah. But they did not conclude that. They concluded instead that he was a naughty boy. He concluded that he was worthy of death. And it still happens today. People approach, investigate, talk about, think about Jesus with self-interest at heart. Even on the most recent Alpha course, I heard a story of a guy who had investigated, listened, chatted around, talked about Jesus and who he was, and almost in one sense had agreed with the Christian viewpoint. 
But because he wasn't prepared to change his life, because he wanted to be in control, because he wanted to be the one who ruled, because it was all about him, he couldn't take those claims any further. He couldn't accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He couldn't do anything about that because he put in self-interest first. He approached Jesus out of self-interest. The chief priests bring Jesus to Pilate to say, to say, this man deserves to die. But we can look at their self-interest, their pride, and their sin, and we can conclude this. They deserve to die. Before a holy God, they deserve death. What about the crowd? Let's see what happens to them in verse 11. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have, the, have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Crucify him. They just listened to the religious leaders or those around him. And by doing that, they call for a man's death but they haven't examined the facts, the evidence. They haven't looked at Jesus for who he is. It's lazy. It's weak. It's sin. They're shouting for the death of the Son of God without any evidence. They're shouting for him to die and for the release of a convicted murderer instead. It's horrendous. But it happens in this day and age too. Last year, on Facebook, there was a story that was circulated where Pope Francis endorses Donald Trump's presidency. What? On one side, what? That's ridiculous. On the other side, of course. Finally, people have seen the way. People went mental. 900,000 shares on Facebook within a day. This is ridiculous. People venting and getting frustrated. No such thing had happened. No endorsement had been issued. Nothing had been said. But we have the crowd of the Facebook media. We had the leaders of the posts that come out. And people just get on board. They start judging. They start condemning. They start criticizing with no actual evidence, no facts. It's so easy to jump in. It's so easy to judge. What does Jesus have to say about that? Let's go to, the, to Matthew 7. Actually, we'll go to Matthew 7 later. We will go there. I know you're excited about going to Matthew 7, but we're not going there just yet. The shouts of the crowd and their sin at wanting an innocent man dead condemn them. And we don't just arrive at that conclusion. It's the same conclusion that Peter arrives. If we go to Acts 2, this is the day of Pentecost. The Spirit has been poured out. They've been empowered, emboldened. And Peter, the man who denied Jesus three times, is suddenly preaching with power and authority and directness and bluntness. And in Acts 2, 22, Acts 2 verse 23, he says this, This man was handed over to you. This is the crowd. He's talking to you. Handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Peter blames the crowd. He said, there's some responsibility you guys need to have here. You crucified Jesus. You sent him to the cross with your shouts. Peter agrees they're guilty. 
Peter agrees they're worthy of death. Well, what about Pilate? He's a bad isn't he? History at the time has him down as a baden. But in this trial here, he gets so close to not being too bad. So close to getting it right. Verse 10, we've seen already, he saw through the leader's facade. He knew it was out of self-interest they brought Jesus to him. Nice one, well done. But he looks for a weak, easy way out. Instead of declaring this man innocent, unworthy of death, he looks for a weak way out. He says, well... I could release him, like I do every, this time every year. They say, no, 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 Barabbas we want. And what does he do? Verse 15, so damning and so dangerous. Verse 15 says this, he satisfied the crowd, wanting to satisfy the crowd. He wanted to keep his popularity. He wanted to keep his position, so he satisfied the crowd. Does the name Carthic mean anything to anyone? Carthic? Yeah. Shout it out, Mayor. Is it? The guy from The Apprentice. This guy from The Apprentice. It was lovely. He was a great guy from The Apprentice. Really fun to watch. But when he got to be project leader, he was like a mini pilot. He wasn't not like a little small man flying a pain. You know what I mean? A mini pilot from the story. And instead of going with what he felt was right. Instead of leading, instead of making decisions, he's always like, right, what does everyone else want? What do you guys want? I want to satisfy the crowd. I don't want to get on the wrong side of anyone else. I want to make sure I'm popular. And that was the most important thing, rather than him going with what he felt was right. Exactly what Pilate does. It's so easy to do. In some senses, Pilate's guilt is the most sad. He was so close to getting it right. He arrived at the right conclusion in terms of Jesus' guilt. But then he fails at the final hurdle. He wants to satisfy the crowd and therefore condemns an innocent man to die in order to maintain his popularity and his position. We must conclude that he also is guilty. He also deserves to die. Now I want to move on into a slightly more uncomfortable way of looking at this passage and completely turn it around on me, on you. It's, it's lovely, isn't it, to look at other people and say, look at them, <laughs> simple, they get it wrong, it's great fun. But we're going to look at ourselves, a bit of introspection, we're going to look at ourselves in the light of this passage. So firstly, like the religious authorities, do we act out of self-interest? Philippians 2 verse 3 says this, do nothing, not do a few things, not do mostly, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's the encouragement from Scripture. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. But it creeps in, doesn't it? It's so subtle. It gets in there and we start doing things because we want them or we're looking out for ourselves and making sure we get the right things. I think... My children sometimes demonstrate that really well. I demonstrate it really well. Now, I need to issue a health warning at this point in time. I made three children cry this morning. Three babies. But Lily is a really good example of operating observably and totally out of self-interest. So she's one. If she gets hold of a mobile phone, either given one to play with or she managed to sneak one, because she's pretty good at sneaking one, 
If you take it off her, this is what she do, does. If you don't like loud noises, you need to cover your ears now. Okay? She literally does that if you take a phone off her. That is the noise she makes. It's, it's this beautiful, cute little baby. You take the phone off her, you think she could kill you. She's that aggressive. Because she knows what she wants. And she's gonna get, she doesn't care that it's my phone. She, she's got it in her hands, it's hers, and she's going to shout. She's operating out of self-interest. And she's making it very observable. Now, as adults, we learn to behave in a slightly better way. But some of us. But perhaps, I don't know, sometimes it comes through. Last night, I was at a little birthday party, and uh, cake was being distributed with uh, chocolate oranges on the top. Very nice. And one was passed to my friend Chris Chart here. And he got one with a mini segment on top, not a full one. He just looked at Dave like this. He didn't say anything, just looked. And lo and behold, a full segment was then placed on his plate. Now, Charty was joking, generally speaking, I'm sure. He would love to have just had a small segment and let the big one go to anyone else. But we sometimes operate out of self-interest, don't we? <laughs> or when no one's looking, we, dec- we decimate the cake and just take the chocolate orange off the top, don't we, Jody Chart? <laughs> hmm? Be sure your sins will find you out. <laughs> Joe. Uh-oh, I'm about to ask Susie to excuse herself. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a microphone, you giggle away, it's fine. Um, it's funny, isn't it? But what's the root? The root is selfishness. The root is, oh, I just want what I want. I'm, I come first. It creeps in so easily, and we are guilty of self-interest. Are we blindly following like the crowd? We may not have shared or ranted about the Pope Francis Donald Trump post. We may not be those who recently have shouted, crucify him. But we may have jumped to a conclusion falsely about a friend or a situation without actually first establishing the truth. I've got a good idea. Let's go to Matthew 7. Now's the right time. Matthew 7. Let's see what Jesus says. From verse 1, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the blank in your own eye, plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Who's been to a live football match in their life? Or a rugby match? Or a cricket match? Anyone? No, cricket less so, actually. Football match, particularly. You're watching your favourite team. Your favourite player gets taken down in the, in the, in the area. It's penalty ref. Penalty, go be a penalty. Referee, come on. It's a penalty. Red card, come on. And everyone's shouting, that, is, that ref is blind. 
He can't referee. What's he doing earning a living from that? Get him some glasses. You're rubbish. Riff, you're rubbish. And the whole crowd joins in. He kept going. It builds it up. It builds it up. And the crowd join in. And you, oh, we watched Match of the Day tonight. It's going to be ridiculous. I can't believe that. And you're sitting there watching it. And suddenly you realise your favourite player of your favourite team dived. You'd not established the facts. You've not worked out exactly what had happened, but so easy, so quick to jump to conclusions, so easy to shout at a referee because the rest of the crowd is doing it. At school, there are times, I remember, it was a long time ago, but I do remember, where someone was getting picked on or made fun of. It's so easy to join with a crowd that are doing that rather than to defend the person that's getting picked on. So easy. So easy to side with the crowd. So easy to put our popularity first rather than doing the right thing. When we blindly follow, when we judge on false information, we are guilty. We are guilty like the crowd. So, Pilate, people-pleasing and position-keeping Pilate. Time, uh, can you all put your hands up? I'm not going to because I'm a little bit hot. Put your hands up. Everyone, Because normally when we ask questions, sometimes you put your hands down, don't you? But we're going to put the hands up. Hands down. Hands up. Hands up. So I'll ask a question, and then you can put your hands down in response to the question. Put your hands down if you have done something because it was what you thought people wanted you to do, rather than doing the right thing. Now, Luke Taylor confessed to me this morning that he put his hands down because everyone else did, but otherwise... <laughs> otherwise, he'd have kept his hands up. I thought it was very honest of him. We've just all agreed, haven't we? We're like pilots. We've done the popular thing rather than the right thing. So, so easy to do. Matthew 10, verse 28 says this. This is Jesus speaking again. Do not fear man, but fear God. When we do the popular thing, the root of that is the fear of man, the fear of man's opinion, wanting to do the right thing. That's what gets us. It's a lack of fear of God. When we seek popularity over doing the right thing, we are guilty. Hopefully you agree with me. I'm making a pretty good case for our our own condemnation. It's quite exciting, isn't it? (laughs) It's not. It's horrible. When we come before the word of God, it's, it's sobering, isn't it? There's one character we've not looked at yet. That's Barabbas. So let's spend some time with him briefly before we finish. Verse 7 says this. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. He was a convicted murderer. He deserved to die. He was guilty. He was in prison sitting there waiting to die. He knew what he deserved. He knew where he should go. He knew what was going to happen. But on that day, he suddenly hears his name being called. Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Why are they shouting my name? You're free. You can go. What? What? I can go? How come? I've done nothing. 
That's us, friends. We're Barabbas. The jury is out. We're guilty. Before a holy God, we are guilty. We deserve punishment. We deserve to die. There's no way out. The sentence has been passed. But this is why Jesus stayed silent. This is why he didn't defend himself. This is why Pilate was amazed. This man wasn't wriggling out of this. This wasn't a man trying to escape punishment, but one willingly submitting himself to the Father's plan. The horrible but beautiful irony of this story is that none of the guilty get what they deserve. And the perfect one dies. A horrible, cruel death. But that irony is life for us who believe. A God who places all our deserved punishment on the undeserving one. A son who willingly suffers the pain, the separation and the agony that we should have undergone. His death brings us life. And I want to just take a brief moment to underline the grace of God by doing a theoretical case study of, of, of a chief priest in this story, just taking him through the story, through to the day of Pentecost. We're going to call him Bob for the sake of clarity and ease. So Bob, the chief priest, he's been, he was in the Sanhedrin. And he said, this man deserves to die. He's committed blasphemy. He spat on him. He's hit him. He hates Jesus, hates him, this man who's come to change and undermine his life. This man who's come against the religious authorities with no authority at all. This man, he hates. He's stirred up the crowd. He's got the crowd shouting, crucify him, because the, the one thing he wants in this life is Jesus, dead. Dead. So Jesus goes to the cross, he's crucified, and three days later, Bob hears a few rumours this Jesus has come back from the dead. Well, it must be the disciples hiding the body. He's not come back from the dead. And it's the day of Pentecost, and there's a, a bit of kerfuffle in town, and there's these drunk people speaking in different languages. What's that all about? He goes to check it out. And then he hears Peter preaching, saying, You crucified the Son of God. And how does the crowd respond then? How could Bob respond then? In Acts 2, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive a gift of the Holy Spirit. No one... No one is beyond the grace of God. We are all guilty. This chief priest was guilty. We're guilty. But we're not beyond the grace of God. This chief priest is not beyond the grace of God. It's totally conceivable for him to be put to repentance and to receive the grace of God and for the death of Christ that he brought about be effective for him, to bring him life and freedom. No one is beyond the reach of his grace, not even Bob. Who are the Bobs in your life? Who are those people who you've, you've, you've concluded they're too far away from the gospel? They're too far away from God. They could never respond. Well, if they're baying for the life of Jesus, if they're trying to get him killed, 
They're still not beyond the grace of God. Still not beyond the grace of God. Let's wrap this up. This trial was all about working out, does Jesus deserve to die? Pilate concluded no. We've concluded no, even with our greater test from the Bible. What we've ended up realising instead is that like the religious leaders, like Pilate and like the crowd, who all condemned Jesus to die, we deserve death according to the Bible. We deserve death and punishment before a holy God. Yet in this mockery of a trial, this miscarriage of justice, God's great plan for our salvation is worked out. In God's sovereignty, he works all this evil and sin into his glorious salvation plan. And it's for all these reasons that Jesus actually was handed over to be flogged and crucified. It was only necessary because we are like Barabbas, convicted sinners, deserving death and punishment. It was only because the one deserving, who didn't deserve death, perfectly carried out the Father's plan by going to the cross for you and me. I just want to finish by reading from Romans 6 again. In verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned, brothers and sisters. That's our salary for the way we've lived our lives. Death, separation from God, punishment. But, but, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He died that we might live. He died so we can know him forever. Amen. Let's pray, shall we?